Well, good morning. It's great to be here, isn't it? Even though it's the last day and some of you, I'm sure, have been somewhat frantically packing this morning. I can speak for my family that we had complete calm. We were just gently putting things into the suitcase. We had lots of extra time this morning to take an extra walk. And um, so I, I assume that that's what has happened with all of you as well. There was no tension. There was no, have you seen my running shoes? Where are they? They're on your feet. <laughs> we, uh, we, uh, we've had a somewhat frantic morning, but no, we're, we're, delight, we're delighted to be here. We're thankful that you're here uh, for the last morning. We know that some had to leave yesterday and... Uh, we just want to take a moment quickly to, to thank you again for the beautiful opportunity to return here. Uh, it took 10 years to come back, it took, uh, and, and that's no fault of, uh, of your own. I know we've been trying to do this. I don't know, Brother Dave, when we, when we booked this, it was about five or six years ago. And I, and I remember saying distinctly, Lord, uh, you know, the Lord's going to be here by then. We'll probably be in heaven, but if you insist on putting it on the calendar, because 2016 seemed so far away, it'd be kind of like saying, Let's book a conference in 2022. And you're like, oh, it's so far away. But uh, the Lord has been gracious because his patience is marvelous. And think of all the souls that have been saved in the last five years and how he's been patient and waiting. And so uh, we, we've enjoyed coming back. Our girls have had a wonderful time. It's been great to get to know some of you who we didn't know. It's been great to spend more time with those that we know and we love so deeply. Uh, and we really appreciate and cover your prayers. Please pray for us in uh, Scottsdale or in in Phoenix, Arizona, Scottsdale is a suburb of Phoenix. You know, Phoenix is an interesting city. It is a tremendous uh, Bible-belted area. There are lots of huge community churches, 5, 10, 15,000 in size. Uh, but there's really one really quite small assembly. We also have a small gospel hall in, in the city. Um, and we're really quite small. Sometimes my two daughters are the whole Sunday school. Um, so we have about 30 or so in fellowship and uh, there have been some real challenges and struggles, as with every assembly, in particular the last few years. We're delighted to have the Stratmans with us now, and uh, uh, Jay has recently been asked to join the uh, eldership, and we're very grateful for that. So please pray for the Stratmans. Please pray for us. Uh, pray for um, uh, my work in ministry, for uh, uh, the girls as they go through school, for Heather. Heather's now become a uh, an author. She's written her first book, so watch uh, watch out for that, a kid's book coming out soon. I'm not going to spoil the whole of the uh, surprise, but you might want to look up a book called A Goodbye Kiss on Amazon in a few months from now. Uh, but we're, uh, we're very delighted um, that uh, the Lord has placed us where he has. And we look forward to next year. If we're not in heaven, let's meet here and let's do this again. Turn to the book of Job, please. The book of Job. We've spent <clears throat> quite a bit of time this week thinking about a historical phenomenon and how we have the God of history. Some have said it's his story, right? All of history is based around the person of the Lord Jesus. Even our secular world calls this year 2016, knowing that it is 2016 in the day of our Lord. They don't like to say A.D. anymore. They don't like to to confess that. But uh, the whole of human history has been built around the person of the Lord Jesus. Simple things like that that very often our friends or colleagues may not want to, to be willing to admit but you may remember that we've uh, tried to give you a little sense of timing and not just so that you can academically know it, but that you can see the workings of God and how the Lord blesses and has blessed from the beginning. And despite our repeated consistent failures, the Lord has uh, been able to bless us. In fact, um, I did a series once on a few conferences 
where I looked at the whole of the Old Testament as a seven-step decline of failures, showing that in every realm possible, humanity failed. It started with, the in the start, was the failure of firsts. Have you ever noticed that subplot in the book of Genesis that all the firsts were duds, right? All those firstborn sons, no disrespect to my older brother, but I'm saying, but, you know, but, you know, um, it just seemed that uh, there was always the failure of the first, but the rising of the second. And that was just a picture to us of the failure of Adam as the first man and the rising of the second man. Sometimes the rising was the second. Sometimes the rising was the last. It's beautiful to think that the Lord Jesus is not described as the last man. He's described as the second man, which is to say that there's a whole series of others, because that's referring to death and resurrection. But when it comes to leadership, he's referred to not as the second Adam, but the last Adam. Meaning there isn't a need of another one, right? Sometimes there's a failure of the first, and then the second one fills their shoes, and well, that doesn't work, and we just keep filling shoes until maybe eventually something will work. No, the Lord Jesus is the last Adam. And so historically we see that even the structure of the Old Testament, even the history of the Old Testament, shows to us the steady decline. And so we saw that Noah, sorry, that Adam lived around 4,000 B.C., Noah lived 3,000 B.C., Abraham 2,000 B.C., David 1,000 B.C., and of course our Lord at time point zero. We saw most of what we've discussed this week has been around 500 or so B.C., right at the end of the Old Testament. Well, I thought it might be fitting to end our little series this week with another book, the book of Job. We wonder sometimes, why is Job placed right here? Is it meant to be paired with the book of Psalms, or is it meant to be paired with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther? Well, someday we might be able to ask Ezra that, uh, as he was, as we, we learned this week, the compiler of the Old Testament. But I thought on our last morning, in a bit of a different vein, uh, that we would think about how the book of Job can relate to many of the things that we've been talking about earlier this week and the graciousness of God and the interest that God has not only in his nation but in the individual. So uh, Job, as we'll see in a moment, was probably someone who lived at the time of, if not before the time of Abraham. So now we've had to back up 1,500 or so years to around 2000 BC or even prior to that, and I'll show you why I believe that in a few minutes. But let's do a little bit of reading together Because I think Job is one of those books where we all think we kind of get what Job is saying, but we've not really delved into the depths of it. And obviously in a 35 or 40 minute message, we can't delve into the depths of it. But hopefully we can take some global messages uh, and and lessons from it that will encourage us. Because I'm going to also suggest that the book of Job has been a discouragement to a lot of people. I wonder why God would allow things like this to happen. But let's talk it through. Job chapter 1, let's read from verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright. Now, of course, we know the word perfect doesn't mean perfect as the way we sometimes think of it mathematically, as much as mature or uh, uh, very spiritual. And one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. So, Steve, you got a little catching up to do here, bro. Um, so, his substance also was 7,000 sheep. Uh, and 3,000 camels, and 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 she-asses, and a very great household. So this man was the greatest of all men 
of the east. Now, we don't know exactly where in the east it's referring to, somewhere likely in Mesopotamia, but nonetheless, um, he was clearly a man who not only was blessed spiritually speaking, but physically speaking. Big family, lots of property, lots of resources at his disposal. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So you kind of get the sense that at least his family kind of got along, right? That they wanted to share things and enjoy food with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now, again, I don't want to paint a perfect picture of Job because no one is genuinely perfect in the scriptures. And we'll see part of his response. But this is, as, as you're going to come to see in the book of Job, the book of Job, of course, doesn't refer to the law. That didn't come until Moses' time, which was what year-ish? 1500. Okay, so we're at least 500 years before the law. Right? Of course, th- that itself is important, right? Because when you come to the New Testament, when you're reading in Romans and in Galatians, I mean, there's a very simple argument that's made, right? That, that the law could not have been the source of salvation because Abraham preceded the law and Abraham was saved. Right? Pretty simple point, isn't it? Right? Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. I know that's a huge and insightful comment for me to make. I mean, I know that is absolutely brilliant that 15 comes before 17. But the author uses that. If you hadn't understand the history, you might have missed that. Furthermore, we find that Abraham, was, his faith was accounted to him for righteousness and he was saved, as it were, prior to circumcision. So circumcision was clearly not the means of salvation. So sometimes history helps. So I don't want to make a a perfect uh, description, per se, of Job here. But this is before the book of Leviticus would have been available to him. This is before God had spoken in such a clear way. But if anything, just reading this verse about Job offering sacrifices reassures us and comforts us. That God has an interest in people and he doesn't have an interest in them in only one small vein and capacity or through one small nation of Israel. God is interested in all of humanity. And this man had an understanding of sin and an understanding of the need to sacrifice for the sake of sin. And that, of course, was taught to the human race in the Garden of Eden. That's why it was not sufficient to just make out of fig leaves or whatever and cover themselves or or to try and please the Lord with crops. It was made plain to them that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin before even that verse was written. And so Job had come to understand that and had a personal relationship with the Lord that was more than just, I like to be spiritual. Right? Doesn't people tell you that? You talk to people at work or, or at school and other places and they say to you, well, I, I'm not a religious person but I'm a spiritual one. And I don't really know what that means, right? Sorry, I'm adding the, uh, the voice behind it. But, you know, but, but, you know, and again, I'm not trying to make fun of people per se, because sadly their spirits are dead. Right? So they can't see the difference. So again, I don't want to get us too far off track, but, off track, but what does it mean to be spiritually dead? It doesn't mean that there's no comprehension of spiritual things per se. The natural mind cannot comprehend the things of God. There's some kind of insight or else no one could come to salvation. But, but the realm of the spirit and of the soul are overlapping. And, and sometimes when we think of, 
of dead or the fall of man, we try to think of it not so much as the fall as a tree falling over this way, but of a building collapsing in on itself, where the third floor collapses into the second, the second into the first, the first into the ground. So I might argue that the realm of the spirit crashed into the realm of the soul. The realm of the soul crashed into the realm of the body. We're a tripartite being like God, spirit, soul, and body. So in our restored state as believers, you can distinguish what is spiritual and what is soulish. You can distinguish between what is a desire of the soul and a need of the body. Right? But sin has a way of perverting those things. Right? I need this. I need my hot chocolate in the morning. Sorry, Steve. It's only because I love you, bro. I mean, it really is because I love you. Yeah. It's okay. I'm praying for you, bro. I'm praying for you. Coffee's good for you. But, uh, but we, we have a difficulty distinguishing between a soulish need and a, and a body need. Well, similarly, in the, un, in, in the lost state, distinguishing the spiritual and the soulish is very difficult. So someone might listen to warm music or walk into a church building and feel, oh, this is such a spiritual experience or walk up one of these beautiful pathways and, and say, I'm having a spiritual experience. And in one respect, they, they think they are and there's a degree of it, but it's really more of a soulish experience because they haven't experienced God at the level that God intends us to enjoy him. And so... Job's presence here is teaching us that he could have spiritual relationship with God. And it's ironic, and not ironic, but appropriate, that it's on the basis of sacrifice. He didn't just wake up and say, I want to just, you know, love the God of the trees. That it was on a deeper level than that. And that's an important point, because a lot of people today believe in God, and the Lord bless that. It's wonderful. That's a step in the right direction. But it's not sufficient to just have a mental assent to God. Someone has to come to realize that their spirit is dead and it needs to be awakened. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. That's not the kind of song that you usually hear these days, right? I don't write that anymore. But that concept that I'm lying in utter darkness and this burst of light brings to life my light that, that my uh, bring to light my, my life that's exactly what the lord jesus has done for me and 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 i think that's important and the last point here at the end of verse 5 it says thus did job continually this was an ongoing relationship he had with god this wasn't just a one off this wasn't just i'd make my annual trek to whatever and i give credence to god this is not just when taxes are due i make a donation to to some kind of good cause make myself feel good about it and i'll come back maybe next year no this was a man in continuous touch with the lord because that's a testimony to you and i isn't it god help us to be more like that so that's the important background to this tragedy that is about to land. Now there was a day, verse 6, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now there's a lot of questions. You know, when we do Q&A. We had Q&A with the young people the other night. I'm always nervous. People are going to say, who are the sons of God of Genesis 6? And that's when I say, I'm more than happy to let Steve answer that. <laughs> um, so, so there is, as we go further back in history, and again, I, I'm getting, we have a lot to cover here, so, so I don't want to take us too long, but you know, as we go back in the history of the Old Testament, there is a notion 
earlier, earlier on, that everything is attributable to God, as it were. So even if it says in 1 Samuel that, that there was an evil spirit sent to Saul by God, it's not so much that the Lord sent the evil spirit, but the Lord permits it. This gives us insight into that, that these were angelic beings um, with Satan at the helm, of course, whom God in his divine prerogative allowed an audience. And you might say, well, why would God do that? You have to ask yourself, why does God do anything? God does what is ultimately going to please him. God ultimately does what is going to draw souls to salvation. And it's, it's, a, it's a challenging picture. It's difficult. This is one of the reasons why I think this book has made people to struggle and say, how could God allow this pain and suffering to this man whom Joe has just spent the last 10 minutes telling us is a marvelous man of God? Well, he's making a point, of course. Even in that context, God doesn't bring adversity into your life to get back at you for what you've done. If that were the case, fast forward and just send us all to hell. Really. I mean, if we got what we deserved, that's where we would be. I don't mean to be crass about it, but it's true, isn't it? And praise God, now we live in the day of grace where sometimes people say, oh, you know, I made this, I committed this sin or I did this thing wrong. God's going to get me for that one. That's not the way he looks at it. There is a natural consequence to sin, right? Just like there are laws of the universe, there are laws of sin, right? There's a law of gravity. If I drop my glasses, they're going to hit the floor, right? That's just a natural thing. You commit sin. There are natural consequences of it. We, we, we see that repeatedly in Scripture. We see that over the history of the human race. And sometimes those consequences are immediate. Sometimes those consequences are physical. Sometimes those consequences are corporate. And sometimes those consequences are long-lasting. But it's not like God's getting me for that one. So he's showing here that even in this man who deeply loves the Lord, respects the Lord, and is doing everything he can in his power, even he can face the adversity uh, that he is going to face. Um, and the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Which, by the way, is another sort of disturbing but true truth that we see reiterated in the New Testament. That roaring lion. Which, by the way, tells me that he can't be everywhere at the same time. He has his angelic host. And I think we need to uh, be very careful when we talk about Satan, that we recognize that the he that is in us is greater than he is in the world. But let's not get too high-minded about Satan. We are no match for him personally. You know, and sometimes in some spheres of evangelical Christianity, it's taken a little bit too far, you know. Sometimes I quote a shirt I saw in a Christian bookstore once that said, Satan can't touch this. I beg to differ. He can't touch in the sense that my salvation is secure. I mean, I don't know how people read the same Bible I read and think they can lose their salvation. But, I mean, I have secured salvation forever. He can't touch that. But, but he can touch me. He can affect me and my circumstances and my life. So let's, let's respect, not in the respect of honor, but let's respect the authority, the power of his satanic majesty, as one has called him. We need to be careful with that. Because we haven't that kind of authority. But, but so Satan, nonetheless, has his limitations, right? I love how in the life of the Lord Jesus, very often the limitations of, of Satan were pointed out. 
even even Satan when he was tempting the Lord. And he points out, you know, that beautiful little phrase. And he's pointing out all the kingdoms of the earth. He says, all, all these kingdoms of the earth, which thou hast given me. He knew that he had them on loan for a short period of time. And I like how the expression there, uh, and I think it's in Luke's account that says he was able to show him the kingdoms of the earth in a moment. Like, is that all you got? Right? It's like going to a fireworks display and there's one big firework to start. And you're like, great. Where's the rest? Is that, is that all you got? Yeah, it was great to spend July 4th with you. Thank you. And, and you go home. I'm not trying to make fun of him. Of course, I was just saying, we be careful how we address Satan. But how long did it take Satan to show the Lord Jesus all that he had? A moment of time. How long is it going to take him, the Lord Jesus, to show us what he has? A very long time. It's remarkable. But he comes and he says, I've been walking to and fro on the earth. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? So as if God introduces it. It's not like Satan came to him and said, You know, I've been watching your Job guy. And I'm ready to take him down. The Lord is the one who introduces it. That's what, again, sometimes becomes a challenge to take. But nonetheless, it says, Hast thou considered... And my servant Job, and there is none like him in earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and sheweth evil. And Satan said unto the Lord, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou made a hedge about him and his house, and all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon thyself, uh, upon himself, Put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth to the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job, saying, The oxen were plowing, the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, and they have slain thy servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned of the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And only I am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, I mean, this sounds almost impossible to, to believe. There came another said, the Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, thy sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine, in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. I mean, it's almost inconceivable what he faced in the one day. And again, we haven't had time to talk about Satan, but I'm going to suggest to you that we learn more about Satan in the book of Job than almost any other book in the Bible. Some of the destruction came at the hands of enemies. Some of the destruction came at the hands of nature. Don't underestimate his power. I, I, I can't even imagine what I would do if that were my circumstance. And my family were taken from me. I can't imagine that I would do what he did and to help you understand that the context here, when someone rents his mantle, shaves his head, you know, it's a sign of mourning, 
It's a sign of sadness, of course. But it can also mean if we hadn't had that caveat at the end and worshipped, he could easily have done that and then just gone and cursed God. But that was not his way. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return hither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. I mean, you could almost stop the story there. You know there's more to it. You know that he actually did have physical ailments. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about what happened. But this in and of itself should lift your heart a bit today. Not to say, oh, well, he got it worse than I did. So I guess my circumstances don't look so bad. Although sometimes it is helpful to have a bit of perspective. I shared with you earlier in the week. You know, It's what I do. I tell people every day they're going to die. It's hard to tell someone that they're on the verge of death and then worry about the small things of life. God, give us that perspective. But more so, to understand that this wasn't some kind of emotional denial. This wasn't some kind of spiritual crutch to carry him through life. You know, that's what some of my colleagues think of me. They think, you know, Joe, you, you kind of need that. You know, that's your crutch, right? Some people might say others have used alcohol, others have used drugs, others have used whatever addictions or things that just try to give them their happy place, you know? Let me tell you right now, my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is not some kind of emotional, spiritual crutch to carry me through life. It is life eternal that he's given me. This is a conscious knowledge, unequivocally, that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am his and he is mine. This isn't just some self-help group. I mean, I love you, but you're not my little self-help group to get me through the challenges of life. And so it was with Job. This was real. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Could you say that after that happened to you? And not just say it so that the other Christians hear it so it sounds good, you know? But to mean it in your heart. And one thing we learned throughout the book is that Job, yes, there were challenges. And yes, maybe he shouldn't have questioned God at times as to why this happened. But he knew at the end of the day that God was sovereign. It's ironic I mentioned we learn more about Satan in this book than almost other, any other. We learn a tremendous amount the character of God in this book. Well, let's look at our handout here. I've given you some, some outline to help us through it. This is a unique ancient book that is actually even written in a poetic form that answers, but not fully answers, many of the great questions of life. It's no shock that, in a sense, this is one of the earliest books of the Bible, despite, obviously, where it's landed, as we've discussed. We don't really know who wrote it. Some have questioned Moses, perhaps Job himself. We don't really know. But it looks like it predates Abraham. I've given you just some um, some suggestions here, some uh, reasons why I feel that way, uh, based on... Uh, his wealth described as being from cattle. There was no mention of the law and so on. He lived for 200 years. That was the patriarchal period when people lived for that period of time. The description of money and instruments and so on. Uh, we also know, of course, that it's quoted uh, repeatedly throughout the scriptures, and I've given you those. Uh, for the scientists in the crowd, there's a lot of science here. 
There are a lot of things that can point us to a better understanding of the earth and the human body uh, that, of course, even back then was well understood long before our modern-day science scientists figured it out. But the overall theme, as I've listed here, is the mystery of human suffering. Job suffered. Job suffered more in one day than most of us would ever suffer in a lifetime. I would never pray that any of you would suffer the things that Job suffered. And, and I've listed here four sort of sub-themes to that. They all start with the letter R just to help us remember them. A realistic response of sadness and questioning. Yes, we noted that immediately his response was to worship the Lord. But as we go through the book, it was hard for him. And he was sad. All right? What, is it, what does it mean when the Scripture says, we sorrow not like the world sorrows? Some preachers have almost made it out to sound that you shouldn't cry, you're a Christian. We sorrow. The Lord Jesus wept three times in his life. And yet, we sorrow not like the world sorrows, because we have an intent, we have a purpose, we have an outcome. We've read the end of the book that someone else might not sorrow. I tragically see people sorrow literally every day over their sick family members, if not their dead family members. And when someone sobs in that hopeless sob, it's tragic, isn't it? I don't know if you've seen that, have experienced it. We sorrow. We sorrow not like the world because we have a different hope. We have an expectation. But Job cried. It was hard for him. I'm not saying that it's right to question God, but I'm telling you, when those circumstances come into your life and you ask the Lord, why, how could this be? You're in company with a man like Job. But ultimately, Job, of course, did not curse God. Never did. He refused to do it. And there are times in the life of the believer when it's tempting to just throw in the towel, as it were. I don't know where you are today. I don't know where the circumstances of your life might be this week or last week or next week. Maybe you're here and you almost feel like just throwing in the towel. I'm done. I can't do this. The Lord wants to carry you at that moment. Don't faint. It's easy to say it. It's easy for the preacher to say these kinds of words. But this is a man that suffered immensely. And sometimes we can shake our fist at God and say, why? Why is this happening? The Lord has a reason, a purpose. And sometimes we... Don't appreciate it. Job, even at the end of his life, may not have fully understood that over 4,000 years later, we'd be invoking his name. And perhaps someone here today will undergo their suffering a little bit smoother because of what happened to him. God's ways are so far above our ways. Number three, the revelation of the tr true character of the man and of God. God wasn't trying to, God doesn't take pleasure in our suffering. Let's remember, he knows a lot about suffering, right? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Yes, stated of the city of Jerusalem, but ultimately of the person of the Lord Jesus, who's described as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I love that beautiful expression that he shares with Moses when, when, when uh, the nation of Israel are, are in captivity, of course, in Egypt. And he says, I know their sorrow. I love the way he says that. You could say, yeah, God knows their sorrow because he's God, right? God knows everything. 
In fact, you want to do a good... I still haven't given you enough homework. I may have given you this homework in the past. Study things God knows. Now, you can say, wait a minute. He knows everything, right? But look at the explicit times in the Scripture when he says, I know. And it'll point you. And one of them is that one I referenced. I know their sorrow. He knew their sorrow like no one else knew their sorrow. And he knew their sorrow and cared for their sorrow. And we learned of God himself. Not only his divine sovereignty, not only his authority, not only the fact that Satan's got to come and ask permission to do anything, if you will, but that his ways are past finding out. That he had given insight. Can you imagine Job saying, I know that my Redeemer liveth? How could he have known that? This was even before Abraham had the insight given to him through the deflected sacrifice of his son. Remarkable insight that Job had into the person and character of God. And the Redeemer, as I said here, exalted throughout. So the features of suffering that we want to learn from this book, one is it's not equitable. It's not fair. Life isn't fair. I'll be the first one to admit that and say that. It's not like we all have you know, three ounces of suffering and it gets spread out over your life at some point and sometimes you get more earlier on and some get more later No. Some people in this group here have suffered more than any of us can ever comprehend. It's not equitable. And, and to claim that it's equitable, I think is unfair to the person and unfair to God. It's not a punishment for, for sin, as I've mentioned. Yes, there are natural consequences of sin, but Job isn't being punished because he was sin, sinning. And we need to be careful, as I mentioned before, falling into that trap of God's going to get me for that one. And lastly, it's not ignored by God. The recounting of it here, the detail of it here, tells us that he was interested in every single little boil on Job's body. Don't ever think when you're in the midst of that suffering that he doesn't know and that he doesn't care about every single bit of it. Nothing goes past him without his full knowledge. The prophetic implications here was that it would, if you want to look at a pr- prophetic standpoint, this book speaks to us of um, how the nation of Israel would suffer, but ultimately, of course, of the suffering Savior himself. And of course, there are beautiful references. Oh, I know our time's going quickly, but if we could look at it, it, it we would take time to look at these Beautiful references to the person of the Lord Jesus. I've listed them here that you can look up your own. He's the mediator who who lays hands on both of us. He's the suffering savior. He's the one who's the advocate pleading for his neighbor. And of course, in beautiful fashion, he's that redeemer that lives uh, that that Job quoted. I've given you an outline there uh, to help you follow through it. But as we close, let me just make a couple of final comments about a few practical lessons that we have here at the bottom of your handout. Number one, we've talked already about the nature of suffering and its prolific effects. One of the things I think is important for us to know, is that that brother or sister sitting next to you? You might not know what they're suffering. You might say to me today, look, Joe, no one understands my suffering. And that could be very true. But he knows. And be patient, would you, with your brothers and sisters? We're so quick to judge. Oh, why didn't they do this? And why, why are they doing that? And how could they be doing this? And, and, and what, why weren't they at this meeting? What? 
Yes, we want to keep each other accountable. Yes, we want to support each other. But so often we don't see that depth. And the friends of Job give us a lot of insight into that. I won't go through all of their um, their ramblings back and forth. Some of them were very insightful. Some of them not so insightful. Let me give them one huge credit. When they first came over to comfort Job, they kept their mouths shut. And they just sat with him. My brother, as some of you know, is an ophthalmologist, which is an eye surgeon, eye doctor. And he jokes about the fact that one of his colleagues, one of his partners who comes, has a favorite expression. When patients come in to talk to them, he puts them into the seat. He says, eyes open, mouth shut. Right? Like, I don't want to hear it. I just want to look at your eyes, right? Which is not really the way we're supposed to do it as physicians. But um, <laughs> eyes open, mouth shut. You know, sometimes when you've gone to comfort your brother or your sister, someone who's suffering, sometimes it's almost better to keep the mouth shut, at least initially. I love how the Lord did this. I suggest that this was a pre-incarnate Christ who came to, to visit Elijah in his, yes, I'll use the word depression. I mean, Elijah met our medical criteria for clinical depression. He was suicidal. He was out of touch with reality. He refused to eat. He refused to sleep. He was physically suffering as well as emotionally and spiritually suffering. And it says that the angel came along to him. What was the very first thing the angel did? Touched him. Physically touched him. Second thing the angel did is he fed him. It wasn't until the third step that there was any formal communication with Elijah. And sometimes when your friend, your brother, your sister in Christ, your family member is suffering, before you come over with a five-point sermon explaining to them from the book of Job that God's going to get them through this, before you do that, give them a hug. Bring them a casserole. Feed them. Meet their physical needs. I think that's speaking to us of the importance of when people are suffering to meet their simple, basic physical needs before you come in and try and meet their spiritual needs. Of course, Elijah thereafter was encouraged. He was told he's not the only one who's suffering. There are 7,000 that refused to bow the knee to Baal. And then he was challenged with the work to do. That interaction between the angel and Elijah is a beautiful example of us how to deal with a believer who's suffering. On the other hand, some of these uh, friends of Job came and went a bit too far and tried to pontificate about why this was happening and led to some pretty lengthy, complicated discussions. Uh, thirdly, the sovereignty of God. God's in charge. Sometimes I don't understand it. Sometimes I can't wrap my tiny little brain around it. But I wrap myself around him. And know that he knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And that like Job, he had a real hope. Job knew that because he lost his things, and sadly even his family, that he had a hope that was real. And you and I have that. Isn't that what the world wants? Isn't that the world's looking for? Uh, they, 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 they are longing and desiring, for, desiring of something that's real. And we have it. God help us to share it with them. I hope some of these thoughts will encourage you and, and, and launch you uh, back to your places uh, today, wherever you're heading, with a little bit of sobriety, understanding what Job went through, but encouragement to know that God is able. And God is going to carry us through the storm and going to take us home. Let's pray.
Father, we are uh, very blessed to be here today. We're so thankful for the goodness of God. Uh, Father, it's overwhelming to us when we think of how Job could suffer and yet still want to, in some capacity, worship the Lord. How is that possible? Father, help us to be very appreciative of so much that we have been given. Father, there may be individuals here today who on the outside look well and happy and enjoying the week, but are suffering in their hearts. Oh God, surround them. Be to them what we can't be. Help us to be to them what we can. Encourage them. Father, we're grateful again for this marvelous conference. We're uh, blessed. We're thankful now for our brother Steve to be able to share the final message with us. Bless him. Bless his family. Bless Jan in particular. She heals from her injury. Uh, And Father, just encourage us and cause us to know we are part of the genuine and singular family of God. In his name we pray. Amen.